You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Previously on Putting It Together... A year in the life since the pandemic dimmed the lights on Broadway. We've got to lay the groundwork for a strong comeback for Broadway and off-Broadway. Our theater community needs it, but our city needs it too. It's part of our identity. It's part of who we are. It's part of what people love about New York City. The Save Our Stages bipartisan bill is what I call a miracle. It's about putting people back to work. We're looking at four different opening timelines and essentially just preparing ourselves to be nimble, to be able to respond to news as we get it. I don't have any more insight than anybody else has into this, but I know that being dug into a certain fixed period of time is counterproductive. The reality is the function of what the virus tells us, what public health policy will tell us, and what the media headlines tell us, and what consumer behavior is. The Broadway League says it hopes theaters will reopen again in the fall. I think we all hope so, too. Hello there, I'm Ollie Southgate, and from the Broadway Podcast Network, this is Putting It Together, and our sixth COVID-19 special. Last month, I gave you a brief update on the news from the mayor's office that the city was officially eyeing a full reopening for Broadway shows and the steps they were enacting to ensure that happened. Since then, to put it lightly, a lot has happened. Let's recap the major events and announcements on Broadway since my last episode on April 2nd. I put on my mask and I open the door and right there, standing in my hallway, it's Hugh Jackman! I know, I know. April 5th, 2021. The first New York Pops-Up event to take place in a Broadway house happens at the St. James Theatre, formerly home to Disney's Frozen, which announced it was closing just after the shutdown began and loaded out shortly thereafter. The 40-minute show features performances from Savion Glover and Nathan Lane. It's directed by Jerry Zaks. The Pops-Up series as a whole is produced from a financial standpoint by the state of New York and from a logistical one by Jane Rosenthal and Scott Rudin. And he wants to be back in a theatre as much as I want to see him in one because he asks me, 
Can I sing You Got Trouble from the Music Man for you? Two days later, on April 7th, Rudin is the subject of a major expose in The Hollywood Reporter, written by Tatiana Siegel. The pull quote for the headline is, Everyone just knows he's an absolute monster. If you're listening to this, I'm sure you already know what the details of that article were. I won't pour over them again here, but the short version is that many of his previous assistants and staffers, some anonymous, some not, went on the record to recount stories of verbal and physical abuse injured in his office. These allegations span a long period of time. It's not just his one time when he really blew his lid. It's witness after witness, victim after victim, year after year. And the response? Well, mostly silence. A couple of industry publications run the story, but not in any prominent way, mostly just recapping a few bullet points from the original article. There's no statements from anyone in a position of significant power, nothing from Rudin himself. Not yet, at least, but I want to keep this in chronological order, so stick with me here. The place that does light up with comments about it is, of course, social media. A few prominent Broadway actors share the story and comment on the bravery of those involved with it and the deplorability of its subject. One of them is Karen Olivo, although this post is not that post. We'll get to that too, trust me. The conversation is mostly taking place in a vacuum at this point, though. There's still no official response from any other major producers or collaborators of Rudin's, or from any union. The next day is April 8th. Today, the Small Business Administration is due to open applications for the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant, a $16 billion grant program earmarked for theatre owners and producers who can prove they took significant financial damage as a result of the pandemic. It plans to award up to $10 million per applicant to help shows and theatres get back on their feet and back open for business. It's one of the main direct financial outcomes of what was formerly known as the Save Our Stages Act. You'll remember Charlotte St. Martin of the Broadway League talking about that at length on this podcast back in November. The SBA anticipated 30,000 applications and expected to be awarding grants to around half of those, but there were a lot of questions about what kind of eligibility proof was needed in order to apply. But it didn't really end up mattering. A couple of hours after it opened at noon, it was suspended. Overwhelming demand had led to a complete stalling and crashing of the application portal. After that weekend, it's Monday, April 12th. At the next New York Pops-Up event, this time at the Broadway Theatre, Amber Rahman performs and ends the event by addressing the fact that one of the event's producers has had all these allegations made against him so publicly. She doesn't mention him by name, but it's clear what she's talking about. And I'm not saying she should have been the first one to name and shame him either, but you'll see in just a moment why I'm making a point of mentioning that. Again, stick with me, it's been a wild month. Later that same day, the presidents of three unions, Actors' Equity Association, the American Federation of Musicians, Local 802, and SAG-AFTRA, issue a joint statement on workplace harassment and bullying, saying that all three unions would hold perpetrators accountable and asking that employers do the same. The statement ends with, quote, We demand action on the part of our corporate counterparts to swiftly address credible allegations of harassment, unquote. It's the first official statement from an industry organisation about the allegations, but again, Rudin is not referred to by name. Two more days pass. It's Wednesday, April 14th. We're now one week out from the original article going public. This is when the Karen Olivo post that you probably thought of earlier happens. Olivo says in an Instagram Live video that's then posted to their feed that they will not be returning to the cast of Moulin Rouge. The caption of the posted video reads, Humanity is more important than my bank account. Building a better industry, I'm yelling now, building a better industry is more important than putting money in my pockets. The silence about Scott Rudin, unacceptable. Unacceptable. That's the easy one, (laughs) y'all. That's the monster. That should be a no-brainer. 
Clearly, Olivo is posting this video out of sheer frustration, although I have to say for how angry they clearly are, the delivery is remarkable. It's direct, but it's measured and thought through, and it makes a lot of sense. It's the result of waiting a week for somebody in a position of power to call Rudin out by name and to say, this isn't okay, we're not going to stand for it. A quick side note, only because I'm keeping these updates in order. The next day on April 15th, a spokesperson for the SBA tells Broadway News that the grants portal is still not ready, a week after its original failed attempt to open for applications, but more on that later. After a couple more days, it's now April 17th, finally a statement comes from Scott Rudin himself. He says, and I'm going to quote here because the wording of this is very particular and something I want to comment on later, that he will, quote, step back from active participations on our Broadway productions effective immediately, unquote. What does that mean exactly? Stepping back rather than resigning? It's vague, I imagine deliberately, but more on that later too. Now that he's acknowledged it himself, suddenly the floodgates are open, and everyone's more than happy to talk about it and name him when they do so. Longtime movie and TV and Broadway producer Scott Rudin just announced he's stepping back from the spotlight after a whole bunch of allegations of abuse and violence from ex-staffers and performers. Scott Rudin, one of the biggest producers on Broadway, stepping back from his duties amid accusations that he was abusive to colleagues. CBS 2's Corey James joins us live on Broadway, where one of Rudin's shows is still scheduled to open this fall. Scott Rudin was supposed to be the lead producer on the upcoming musical The Music Man, starring Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster. You can see both of their names on the marquee there, but now he is reportedly removing himself from active participation in his shows after reports of alleged verbal abuse and a toxic culture in his office. Everyone who knows his name knows the story of Scott Rudin. And that story for the producer of nearly eight. And on the same day as his statement, Equity issues another one too, calling on him to release all of his staff from the non-disclosure agreements they all signed as a condition of working for him, so they can speak freely about what happened there. Nobody responds to that ask, and on April 20th, Equity members announced that they're planning a march on Broadway a few days later to protest both the Scott Rudin issue and industry inequality in general. That march takes place April 23rd. A group of around 300 actors and activists march down Broadway, calling for more protection and transparency from equity. I am deserving of so much more. Disabled representation need not be only in shows that are about disability, that we can play any role. We don't get it! Shut it down! It is not enough a year ago to put a black square on your Instagram. Say no! Don't take your contract! That same day, the New York Pops Up Festival says he's no longer involved with them, and the day after, he resigns from the Broadway League. This is probably the most major consequence he's faced so far, albeit, officially at least, it was his decision. No longer being part of the League means no longer being part of the group that has the most wide-reaching power over Broadway shows and the way they operate. Although, of course, depending on what stepping back means, and we'll dig into that later, he can still call the shots on his own productions, which are some of Broadway's biggest. The following Monday, the SBA reopens the grant application portal. It works this time. They receive 17,000 applications in the first 24 hours. We're almost caught up here, I promise, but the month ends with some better news. Last Thursday, April 29th, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio is back in the news with a bold statement about reopening the city as a whole. <laughs> Our plan is to fully reopen New York City on July 1st. We are Ooh. ready for stores to open, for businesses to open, offices, theaters, full strength. So the city is planning to be fully reopened on July 1st. Responding to that news, the league says on the same day that it's continuing to target September as its reopening date for the earliest shows. 
Mayor de Blasio has said a few times over the past month that ultimately the state has to give the all clear for mass gatherings, which is what will officially greenlight Broadway, since they were the ones to restrict those gatherings in the first place. And on Monday, this past Monday, at the time that this episode comes out, that announcement comes from State Governor Andrew Cuomo. Wednesday, May 19th, most capacity restrictions will end across the tri-state area. Now, they may make their own economic decision as to when they need to reopen. Broadway, for example, has a schedule. They have to produce a play before they can sell the play. Uh, So there's a, a schedule for them. But from a capacity point of view, they can all reopen on May 19th. And two days later, yesterday at the time I'm recording this, two days ago on the date of release, the big date we've all been waiting for is Andrew Cuomo again. Uh, Broadway tickets go on sale today at 100% capacity for theaters. The shows open September 14th. That's a function of how Broadway operates, obviously. They have to have a play to put on, and uh, they're in the process of doing that. But the tickets go on sale tomorrow. A quick note about this before we wrap up the recap section of this episode. I spoke to a lot of people at a lot of different shows and companies, and nobody really knows where these dates that the governor announced came from, and they certainly didn't know that such a bold and clear-cut announcement was going to be part of this briefing. Tickets, he says, go on sale tomorrow. But says who? A couple of shows were ready and waiting with pre-sales, but if you read their announcements, it's clear they then got things on sale on that date because this announcement said they could. Not because they had advance warning or were in on deciding this date. Initially, I thought maybe some of the bigger shows put this date in someone's ear, but the Disneys and the Wicked's of this world were also not ready to go. Reports on Broadway News cite May 11th as their planned on-sale date. And apparently, the shows open on September 14th. This is another date that nobody seems to have been told about, not least the League, who hastily put out a press release being thankful to the governor's office for the all-clear, but reiterating that all shows are making individual plans, both for putting tickets on sale and restarting performances. I have no idea who put this announcement together for the governor, or told the state that these two dates were things that were happening. It wasn't the League, it wasn't any big powerful show, so where did they come from? Maybe we'll never know, but I did want to note that here. Everything I've just told you happened in one month. And that was the Cliff Notes version. There were other issues with the timing and logistics of the SVO grants. There was a lot else said about Scott Rudin. There were all kinds of responses from different industry bodies about the city and state reopening announcements. Even that May 11th date I just mentioned for the larger shows to go on sale has its own controversy associated with it in terms of how it came to be. But I won't go into that this time, maybe in another episode. Even as a top-line summary of events, one that I tried to keep as factual as possible. I mean, wow. If April 2020 was the month of silence and uncertainty on Broadway, April 2021 was certainly the month of raised voices and beginning to find our way back. And after all, that's why we're here. That's why you're listening to this. And by the way, thank you for doing so. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now that the dates are set, 
May 19th or September 14th or sometime in October if you're most shows or January if you're another kind of show. Truly, who knows? But let's not get too caught up on that. Let's talk about how that's all going to work. The good news is we're not the only major theatre market in the world and some others have gone before us. The closest commercial model to Broadway internationally, of course, is London's West End. There, resuming performances has been attempted a couple of times over the past six months, but those efforts have been thwarted by government lockdowns being reinstated at the last second and no show managed to be on for more than a few performances, if any. In line with government restrictions which were announced very last minute, the shows that did start up again in early December, like Six and Les Miserables at the Stage Concert, were stopped again by December 15th. Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber has been one of the more vocal figures from the industry, telling the British government that they needed far more clear plans than they were getting in order to avoid more damage being done. One of the things people don't understand, or it seems that governments don't understand, is, is that theatre isn't like a tap you could just turn on and off. It's not like a cinema where you can just say, Okay, I've got the film, we've got a projectionist, we can project that film. Theatre is about hundreds of people who we depend on to give that live experience who have to be rehearsed and they have to be made safe. It's just not something that we can just do overnight. Despite all that, the West End is now re-emerging, with the Prime Minister announcing an end to all lockdown measures there in three tiers. That process began on April 12th and ends on June 21st, with a number of shows now announced and on sale for performances starting this summer. So that's still to come. Our closest comparable market is still also planning its official full-scale reopening. The next closest market, however, is Australia, and the news there is a lot better. Back in December, Frozen successfully opened in Sydney and has dates in Melbourne coming up. Melbourne's production of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child followed in late February at the Princess Theatre, and then in March, Sydney welcomed a show you just might have heard of. Hi, I'm Katie from Aussie Theatre. Tonight we're at the Australian premiere of Hamilton the Musical. We are in the room where it happens. So excited for Sydney and for Australia. This is an amazing night and Michael Cassell's done an amazing job. I'm so proud of him and what we've been able to do during COVID and it's going to be an amazing production. You know, I say, look around how lucky we are to be alive right now. I am standing here in the most beautiful city in the world. We're back being able to go into theatres again and watch magic happen on stage. And I think that Hamilton coming back tonight is a new beginning. In Australia, the theatre shutdowns are over because, broadly speaking, the pandemic is as good as over there as well. Across a population of 25 million, the last time they had a daily new cases number that was three digits was in early September of 2020. One of the ways the country has managed to maintain such low numbers for so long is because they're an island nation with closed borders. That's not as major a part of the Australian theatre audience as it is here on Broadway. Here, it's just shy of 20% of all ticket buyers, according to the demographic reports for the last full season. But it still presents challenges, and we'll get into that. But first, I wanted to just get an idea of what it was to open a major, commercial, full-scale, non-socially distant show during a global pandemic. And there's one person who's done that twice so far this year first with Harry Potter, and then with Hamilton. Here's executive producer Michael Castle. With the environment of the pandemic, you know, we had spent a great deal of time, well before we even got the nod from government and the health authorities that we could open, working with, with government, with the stakeholders, with the health authorities, with the venues, on developing all of the protocols and procedures that would allow a safe return. So when we finally got the nod, and indeed Harry Potter and the Cursed Child was the first show to, of ours to be given the okay, we received that in December, the second week of December, and we were back in 
in rehearsals that first week of January, we were ready to go. So really for us, it was about getting in contact with the entire company, with our cast, crew, with the creative team to say we're back in rehearsals. The good thing was that all of the protocols and procedures that were being developed in order to keep that environment safe were ready to go. And we felt that they were, you know, comprehensive and and would provide the best environment in which to keep rehearsals going and indeed get the show open. And back here in New York, where case numbers are still in the high thousands every day, some off-Broadway theatres are also now back up and running, thanks in part to a class-action lawsuit against the state, but also because the considerably lower running costs mean that even with social distancing, the essential outgoings can still be met. Here's Catherine Russell, General Manager of the Theatre Centre, which houses two spaces, currently showing The Office, a musical parody, and Perfect Crime. Both started performances again last month. It became evident to me that nobody was going to include small venues with restaurants when things reopened. We were closed with them, but we were not going to be reopened with them. So I started doing research on how to make theaters more safe, I would say probably in May. Um, And in July, I installed a new ventilation system in the theater that basically scrubs the air. Um, I got an SBA loan and and uh, to uh, to make the improvements in the theater because we had no revenue coming in and installed this ventilation system. And then I started doing research on everything else that we would need to do in order to make the theater safe when we were allowed to open. By September, when restaurants were open and gyms were open and bowling alleys were open, it became clear to me that theaters were not going to be included. And that's when I organized a group of small venues and comedy clubs and hired the lawyer who had gotten the gyms and the restaurants open. And we sued Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio and the state of New York for the right to reopen. In order to file this suit, I had to do a huge amount of research and counteract the claims of the Dr. Dr. Jay Varma for the city and Dr. Deborah Blog for the state that theaters were unsafe. We came up with contactless ticketing, contact tracing, hand washing, uh, surface cleaning, and we came up with a whole protocol that we thought, if enforced, would keep audiences very safe. And we're using that protocol now that we've been given permission to open. Both Michael and Catherine have already done what Broadway has not yet been able to do, put shows on again and have audiences come and see them in person. Both came as a result of diligent preparation and were handled case by case by their respective governments. I asked them both what that process was and what's different about being in those theatres now versus last March. Here's Michael Castle again. Well, I think from an audience perspective, the experience really isn't that different from normal pre-COVID times. The biggest difference for our audience, though, is on arrival, the requirement to check in with their QR codes. And you're required here in Australia to do that, whether you're going to a gym, to a restaurant and now a theatre. So our audience members are required to do that upon arrival. We are requiring that our audience members continue to wear masks when they're in the theatre and indeed when they're seated uh, watching the performance. Some theatres in New South Wales and in Victoria are no longer requiring that. It's an individual theatre's choice as to what they mandate, but we feel that's the right thing to do for the time being. 
And then it's really the delineation of the two zones, uh, which is the other major impact. We have a zone A, which is the company. So that's backstage, our cast, crew, musicians, creative teams, etc. And then zone B, which is front of house. And that affects obviously all of the hospitality, ticketing, front of house staff, and indeed our audience. And that's really important because in a lot of the planning, when we were working this through with the epidemiologists and the health authorities, what we wanted to ensure was was that those two zones wouldn't cross. And the reason that's important is because in order to protect the company, if we were to have a positive case in the theatre, we wanted to do our utmost to ensure that there was very limited, if not you know, zero chance, of that person interacting with a member of our company so that we could you know, ensure that the company was maintained and obviously performances continue. And so that separation of zones is critical. It's proved uh, to be, you know, challenging more so from a hospitality and and theatre perspective. Pre-COVID, there's a lot of interaction uh, between front of house and and back of house, you know, even just with staff arriving at stage door. So that's completely changed. And indeed, if, you know, I'm watching the show and in front of house and then want to go backstage, I have to don PPE gear in order to, to go backstage. So that that is an area that we've been really focused on and are quite strict about. But other than that, from an audience perspective, there's been venue enhancements and, and focus on things like air conditioning flow, enhanced cleaning, etc. But other than that, it's, it's business as usual. Our audiences can still go and get a drink at the bar. They can uh, have a drink with their friends. They can go to the merchandise uh, kiosk. They're still open and running. It really is um, a normal theatre experience with just a few add-ons for safety and, and for extra precaution. Catherine Russell. In order for theatres to open, I kind of call it the two Vs. You need vaccination and ventilation. So we have 20,000 square feet here. We're on two floors. There are two theaters and there's a studio and a theater on each floor. So we have these, they're called Matterhorns, um, these air scrubbers installed all over um, the ductwork in the theater. Ironically, I bought five Matterhorn 1002 and five more Matterhorn 1000, the smaller units, and paid for them. And then my HVAC guy could not get the smaller units. So we actually got all large units that are even more effective for the price that I was supposed to pay for <laughs> five and five. So we have two and a half times the air scrubbing we actually need for this space. After addressing the ventilation, it seemed to me that the other really important thing, other than making sure that people use hand sanitizer and stay six feet away from each other when seated, would be vaccination. And so every single person who works at the theater center has been vaccinated and had two weeks since the vaccination. That that was happened before we started. Um, even the woman who cleans the theater during the day, our house managers, our treasurers, all the actors, the stage managers, everybody has been doubly vaxxed. Actors Equity requires that we get, the company members get a COVID test once a week, which we did last week, right before Perfect Crime opened, and we're getting tested again today. But if everyone is vaccinated in the theater, it's much safer for the people who work here and much safer for the audience members who come in, all of whom have to be masked at all times. So nothing crazy or unexpected. In both places, ventilation systems and cleaning routines have been upgraded and improved, and audiences are still required to wear a mask throughout their visit. Depending where you are, required vaccinations for staff and company members and delineated front-of-house and back-of-house working environments may also be in play. 
All of this is manageable for Broadway too, and since it doesn't sound like a drastic change from the pre-COVID experience, it's worth asking the question, has it all gone to plan so far? You know, I think people are very um, used to wearing masks. So I think the idea of walking into the theater, keeping your mask on is not something that people are going to fight. The only problem we've had with any performance, I think last Saturday night in the office, there were four intoxicated people. They took their masks off. Our house manager swooped in and got them out of the theater immediately. That's the only problem that we've had. For people who think, well, how are you going to do that? House managers are used to trolling for cell phones. <laughs> so they're used to monitoring audiences and very discreetly kind of telling people to turn their cell phone off. In this case, please, sir, you need to put your mask back on. If not, I'm going to ask you to leave and then sort of shepherding them out. And so that's exactly what happened. And that's, we anticipated that that might happen. We've only had it happen once so far, but otherwise knock on wood, everything's gone pretty smoothly. Thankfully, it did go to plan. There weren't sort of any surprises. And I think, you know, that's just testament to the amount of work and discussion and, and planning that our production team and all of the stakeholders had undertaken to make sure it was such a smooth and efficient experience. All of us had spent close to 12 months talking about returning to the theatre. Obviously, you know, none of us anywhere in the world had imagined a time without theatre for, for such a protracted period of time. But I think that for me and a lot of the team, the biggest surprise, the biggest revelation was just how much we missed it. And I think because we had all been planning and talking about it for so long, I think, you know, some of us had sort of distanced ourselves to try and protect us a little bit. But being back in the theatre for the first time, it certainly came flooding back just how special it was and, and how lucky you know we are to be in a job that we love and, and finally to be back in theatres with a company performing and with an audience in, enjoying that performance. And here I had to live vicariously through both Michael and Catherine for a second. It's something we're all so excited about, that first show back. I asked them both about that first night of seeing their respective shows back on stage after a full year away. So I general manage the office. So that opened on, on April 9th. And so when people came into the theater for the first time, I just got on the stage as the theater manager and welcomed everyone. And I felt incredible joy standing on a stage with people ready to hear a story. It, it made me immeasurably happy. Um, I knew that the venue was safe. I'd worked really hard to make sure that was the case and that everyone was masked and we were following all the protocols. So there was not any fear at all, just happiness that people could come back and anticipate laughing for two hours. We opened Potter on the 25th of February. And for us, it was the first time that we had a show opening. Uh, we'd been fortunate enough to attend some other people's shows. So you know, we had felt the excitement of, of being in a theatre full of people once more. But being in the theatre for, for our own show with Potter, you know, some of our audience members had brought their tickets 18 months ago. So there was a great deal of anticipation. And I think certainly for Victoria, which here in Australia had the brunt of uh, a lot of the lockdowns and, and impact of COVID. It was certainly a, a, a thrilling experience to be back in the theatre once more. A week later, um, we opened Perfect Crime, and so I was on stage as an actress, and that was also a really wonderful experience. I love working in the theatre, so I like being on the stage and I like being in the audience. I like being both. So it was sort of wonderful to have the experience first of watching the first performance of The Office and then a week later being able to do a performance of Perfect Crime. It was very satisfying. I had really missed, I had really missed being in a room with people. <laughs> 
More from Michael Castle and Catherine Russell, still to come. And now, the other big industry topic of the last month, Scott Rudin. We covered the headlines earlier, and now I want to talk about the response, however delayed it might have been. A big reason those responses did eventually come was because actors looking for answers from their union were not getting any. In response to Equity's continued demands for the payment of dues, its members demanded action. For context, if you're not an actor, the structure of Equity's dues are this, according to their website. There's basic dues of $176 a year, they went up by a couple of dollars in 2021, plus 2.5% of gross earnings from Equity contracts. There's also an initiation fee for new members of $1,700, that goes up to $1,800 next year, but obviously Equity has initiated very few new members in the past 12 months with such little work to go around in general, but even less for newcomers. It's also worth mentioning that there's been very little in the way of gross earnings across the board, so the last two of those three amounts I just mentioned aren't really a factor this year. But the union is continuing to request that $176 from its members, regardless of whether they worked or not, in order to maintain their membership status. Kate Schindel is the president of Actors' Equity Association, and I asked her what the union's been doing in this year of such few opportunities for its members. We have made safety in the workplace, I would say, our top priority or one of our top couple priorities. And and unfortunately, it's been very, very difficult to reduce the risk during COVID to any kind of level that could be considered safe to work for many of those months. However, um, when vaccinations became more widely available, that was a game changer. And, you know, I know that there are people all over the country who are raising concerns about vaccinations, but I have quite frankly, just not seen a massive hue and cry among the actors and stage managers we represent. Most, the vast majority seem to be either already vaccinated or like me, uh, extremely enthusiastic about finishing the vaccination process. So that is helpful. Um, But we've also had to confront a lot of other issues, Uh, for example, healthcare and unemployment benefits. And we spent a lot of time and bandwidth uh, pushing for things like the 100% COBRA subsidy for extended unemployment benefits, for um, unemployment to be accessible even to people who weren't about to go to work as full-time wage earners, but might be working on 1099 income uh, projects or uh, people who had contracts but hadn't started them yet. Um, so being able to achieve those things was was incredibly gratifying. Um, but I think there's another component to safety that we it ha- has become very clear needs to be one of our very top priorities going forward as well. Uh, over the last year, we have spent an awful lot of time on the idea that we can't go back to the same uh, American theater industry that we were when the pandemic hit. Uh, There were all kinds of things that were unsafe in our workplaces. And to to be honest, we had paid attention to them before the pandemic, but things like uh, racial discrimination, barriers to access for people with marginalized identities, the show must go on mentality that pushed people to work when they were sick or injured, those things have all been pretty intense points of focus for us as well. Then I asked the question a little more directly, what were dues actually being spent on? I think it's a perfectly reasonable question for people to ask, and I should make very clear that I am not a paid officer of the union. I'm a volunteer. I'm a working actor who, in normal times, in the right-side-up world, derives all or most of my income from actually working in the industry. I haven't worked in a year. I haven't had a paycheck in a year. So I understand, and in fact, have lived the same moment when the when the dues bill comes in, 
wondering where that money is going to come from, right? Um, from the union standpoint, we have lost more than half our income during the pandemic, given the loss of working dues and initiation fees. But we, as an organization, and I personally have been working harder than ever during that time. We've advocated for COBRA and unemployment and arts funding. We've retained the former head of OSHA to help us develop safety standards that are available for any producer, equity or not. Uh, we've created a diversity and inclusion retrofit to combat racism in the industry. We've stepped up outreach to members with our first ever national convention and a new weekly email newsletter. So what I would say is that I know there are going to be people who just can't afford to pay their dues, but for those who can afford it, now is a really critical time to pay your basic dues because what we have coming up in the next six to nine months is reopening the industry across the country. And in order to do that, having cut about 35% of our staff last year, we need more business reps. We need to uh, be able to have additional staff and additional resources to review safety plans and speed the process of getting them approved. And then as people are getting back to work, and there's going to be theater all over the country this summer, um, we need more hands on deck so that when members call and say, I don't understand this piece of the contract, or there's an unsafe situation in my workplace, there is not a delay in getting back to them because the union's understaffed. I want to talk about one thing that Kate just said. She mentioned that her position was a volunteer one. She doesn't get paid a salary. Unions with more than a quarter million dollars in annual income are required to report publicly through the Department of Labor the individual salaries and compensations of their staff, as well as their income and outgoings as an organization. And you can see that report for the year ending March 31st, 2020 at unionreports.gov. The report for this past year won't be filed for a couple more months, so I'm sure that these numbers will be lower on all counts when those filings are made. But for the last normal year the union had, here are some highlights. It's true that Kate Schindel doesn't receive a salary for her role as president of equity, although she did receive just shy of $7,000 in official business disbursements. These are defined as direct and indirect disbursements that were necessary to conducting official business, basically her expenses. It's worth mentioning, though, that the union's executive director, Mary McColl, is paid a salary, $390,000 in the year we're looking at here, and there were 17 other employees being paid six figures during that year too. In total, the union paid out just shy of $10 million in salaries, about 23% of its annual expenditure. I'm not saying this because I think equity doesn't need paid staff or that anybody should not be properly compensated for their time and their skills, and again, those numbers will inevitably be a lot lower this year, but I just want to make the point that although Kate isn't paid, a lot of people are. They're a major labor union, not a charity. Next, I asked Kate about the more hot-button issue right now, Scott Rudin. Members had asked Equity, protested for it even, to place Rudin on the union's do-not-work list. This is a list of employers Equity maintains to tell its members when an employer or a prospective employer is not playing ball. It's violated an agreement with them and not resolved it suitably. It's designed to stop producers marauding as high-end theatrical productions from hiring Equity talent without abiding by Equity rules, which are, after all, basically the point of a union existing. As I mentioned earlier, Equity took a while to name Scott in any of their public statements about safe workplaces, but they did mention him in a letter to all members responding to these calls to add him to the list. On this exact question, they said, quote, The short answer is no. He is a producing member of the Broadway League, and as such, he has agreed to abide by Equity's collective bargaining agreements, unquote. While it's true that he did cease being a producing member of the Broadway League just a few days later, their point that he's never violated an equity contract does still stand. It would be very gratifying to a lot of people to put him on a list with a big, bold title like this, but ultimately, he hasn't done the things that get you put on that list. So if they're not putting him on the list, what are they doing? 
I think it's important to start every one of these conversations by saying to anyone listening that if you are an actor or stage manager, an equity member, and have seen or been the target of discrimination, harassment, or bullying, please call your business rep or, or use our hotline at actorsequity.org slash safety. So we immediately reviewed the story when it came out. And it was it was clear, first of all, that uh, the people who were quoted uh, and making allegations we're not equity members and we're not working on our contracts. I'm talking about this specific story, the Hollywood Reporter piece. And I definitely applaud their courage in speaking out. It should be clear to all of us that everyone deserves a safe workplace, whether they are a union member or not. So we got in touch with the Broadway League asking what actions they might take. We reached out to our sibling unions and put out a joint statement and when Scott Rudin announced that he was stepping back, we called on him to release any of his workers from non-disclosure agreements that they might have signed. A note on non-disclosure agreements here, more commonly called NDAs, since this call to have Rudin release everyone from them has been widespread. For those not familiar, these are agreements, often addendums to employment contracts that, as the name implies, prevent an employee from disclosing publicly or to any third party information about their job or learned on the job if it might cause damage to that employer in some way. The original intention of these kinds of agreements was to protect trade secrets and business information. In the context of a Broadway production office, an example of a reasonable use of an NDA might be to say that you can't work for producer A for a year, then score a job with producer B, and tell them, producer A is planning this big show next year, but they're still trying to get the rights, you should try and get them first. Unfortunately, these agreements get more and more detailed all the time, and now many employers try to use them to stop their employees saying just about anything bad about them, indefinitely, regardless of how true and terrible that thing might be. But there's been some really important legislation passed in the last few years that I haven't seen reported very widely amongst all these calls to have Rudin release everybody from them. In New York State, laws passed over the last few years make NDAs less and less binding. Originally, these laws came out of the Me Too movement. They said you can't use an NDA to stop an employee you sexually harassed from suing you. But in 2019, that was expanded. And now, unless it's the employee's decision to use it, the law prohibits non-disclosure and confidentiality terms in agreements that resolve discrimination, harassment, and retaliation claims of any kind. Effective January 1st, 2020, the law voids any provision in an NDA that restricts the disclosure of, quote, factual information related to any future claim of discrimination, unquote. Unless the agreement, quote again, notifies the employee that it does not prohibit him or her from speaking with law enforcement or an attorney retained by the employee, unquote. The short version of all that? Even if you signed an NDA years ago, if it was in New York, as of last year, you can still disclose that you were harassed and sue your employer, even if you have an NDA that says you can't. Yes, morally, Scott Rudin should release everyone from their NDAs. These exemption laws in New York are wordy and complicated, and they're still risks. And by the way, I should say here, I'm not giving you legal advice. Consult an attorney, please. But ultimately, if somebody who signed one of these NDAs wants to sue him for harassment, an agreement like this can no longer stop them. As of last year, those clauses just wouldn't be recognized in a court in this state for that kind of case. Kate continued. I think it's also important to point out that while this was a very widely shared story, a very widely shared set of allegations, it is far from the only situation or workplace in which theatrical professionals experience bullying, discrimination, harassment. And it takes a multi-pronged approach uh, with buy-in from everyone to actually put an end to those kinds of abuses. For example, the Producers Guild put out a statement taking action to combat bullying among film producers. And I think that 
that kind of thing is going to need to happen in our industry as well, whether it's uh, the Broadway League or our other multi-employer bargaining units or individual theaters that just uh, you know negotiate on their own. If we actually want to stop this, then we have to change the culture. And we have to provide really clear pathways, and in, in many cases, multiple pathways for people to speak up and yet be protected. So we are absolutely working to facilitate and streamline our own process. These are complicated issues, but we're committed to solving them. Is there anyone you can, you're able to name at this point specifically who you're working with for that kind of multi-angled approach? to tackling these kinds of issues? We actually have been in active conversations with the Broadway League, for example, on the Scott Rudin issue. And that seemed to be an urgent and immediate need for that conversation. But certainly we've been working to negotiate over the past several years language into our contracts with any number of employers that would prevent bullying in the workplace. And so I, I would say, you know, it's it's really important to point out that Actors' Equity represents employers of all sizes, theaters of all sizes all across the country. So it takes a lot of conversations, but for things like bullying, for things like racism or discrimination, if we have to go one by one and negotiate that kind of language into every single one of the contracts, then as long as I'm president, that's going to be a top priority. And you said a few minutes ago, quite rightly, that you know everyone deserves a workplace free from the risk of bullying, regardless of their union status. Mm-hmm. But I, the one interesting thing I have thought over the past few weeks in light of that article coming out is that those kinds of workers are currently one of the few remaining professions on Broadway that don't have any union representing them. Would, mm-hmm. you, be, would you be in favor of the unionization of those types of workers? Oh, absolutely. We would certainly support those workers forming a union. We often support workers trying to unionize. You can see it on our social media feed during the Amazon drive in Alabama, for example. Uh, We just finished our inaugural convention a couple days ago, and one of our speakers was Stuart Applebaum, the president of RWDSU, who, uh, who organized that effort and really grounded us in as a convention in what being a part of a union means, why it is important, you know, things that some of us know, but often because we exist in the art space, there's a disconnect philosophically between, you know, I am a member of this arts community and I am a member of a labor union. Um, So I absolutely support people like assistants and associates being able to be part of a union and being covered by the protections of a union contract because unions have the ability to enforce safety for their members in a way that's very, it's very difficult to find a parallel to that in a non-unionized workforce. And uh, yes, so absolutely, that would be something we would absolutely support. In case you didn't notice, that last question was very deliberate. If you're an actor listening to this, I'm just going to apologise now because you might be about to turn against me. I'm so glad and grateful that actors raised their voices and spoke out when nobody else did on the Scott Rudin issue, because it amplified the story immeasurably and made sure that it didn't just fade into the archive of the Hollywood Reporter website. And I truly do wish, like many of them do, that more prominent performers and ones more closely affiliated with Scott, I'm talking about the Hugh Jackmans of the world here, had said more and said it sooner. But somewhere amongst that amplification, the discussion became largely about how actors were going to be protected against producers. And that's super important to figure out too, I'm not suggesting it isn't, but that's not actually who his victims were, and somewhere in the social media shuffle, that detail, it felt like it got lost. 
In fact, the reason he was as successful a producer as he was, the reason he was seemingly the only one who could get the absolute highest tier of celebrities in his shows, was because he stepped so carefully around the onstage and onscreen talent that he worked with and made them feel like royalty. And part of the reason for that, again, was because he knew that if he upset the unions, if God forbid he did end up on the do not work list, he wouldn't be able to keep that calibre of work up anymore. I just want to make sure that among all these completely justified calls for action from our industry's unions, we don't forget the fact that the victims here were non-union workers. Employees that he knew there would be little to no consequence for behaving that way toward. It's an important distinction and hopefully an interesting discussion to have. I mean, perhaps not Hollywood Reporter interesting, but certainly putting it together interesting. Before we wrap up this month, I want you to know something. This is my first time pulling this move on this podcast. I generally like to make sure that my requests for interviews don't come across too tabloidy and tell people that there's no pressure at all to say yes. But in speaking with Michael and Catherine earlier and reviewing the announcements coming from the mayor and the governor that were dictating much of the industry's timeline over the next few months, it became clear that government support of any reopening is critical. To that end, I did ask to speak to someone from the mayor's office for this month's episode. Specifically, I asked to speak to the mayor's office of media and entertainment, even more specifically, the commissioner of that office and El Castillo. But perhaps more concerningly than having no comment at all, what happened was this. They absolutely engaged with me, a staffer in that office responded to my email request, said the commissioner would love to speak to me, and asked what questions I had. But when I told them what those questions were, and trust me, it was nothing crazy, namely what the broad plan was to get Broadway open again by the fall, who they were consulting with on the industry side to make sure that was successful, and what the contingency plan was if that reopening didn't go exactly as expected, they suddenly stopped responding. I'm not saying they don't have answers to those questions, but I am saying they clearly don't have responses they're willing to share on the record. And to me, that makes these announcements a little bit performative. Evidently, they're perfectly happy to say that it's time for Broadway to come back and to champion the economic benefits of that, but they're not willing to put too many hard promises behind what they're going to do to make sure it happens successfully. And so, as ever, for Broadway at least, it falls to the individual producers. The industry has the green light it needs to proceed, but what we don't have are real assurances that the city or the state will take care of us if things go wrong again. That's certainly a cause for concern, but I know that it won't be enough to stop the powers that be from making sure that Broadway at least attempts to be open for business again this fall. I also put this question to my guests. What happens if things go wrong, whether it's because of COVID or something else entirely? How do we make sure that if things have to shut down again, the hit to the business isn't as huge as it was this time? On a sliding scale, they all essentially said it was a little too early to say, but that lessons should be learned, and that they were already coming at their day-to-day jobs differently for that exact reason. To finish this month's episode, once again, here are my guests Michael Castle, Catherine Russell, and Kate Schindel, and I want to thank all three of them for their time. The early lesson we learned was, you know, the, how important that communication and stakeholder management was as we were trying to navigate our way forward as everybody was kind of discovering new information. What I was really proud about was that in our company, we had spent a lot of time on sort of crisis management. We were moving so quickly back in March last year and really everybody in our team swung into action. Going forward, just being absolutely aware that this isn't a foreign possibility. We've now lived it. We know it can impact us globally and domestically and we have to be prepared for that and I think that was a bit of a wake-up call because I think certainly from our perspective in Australia being so far away and being an island you know you think you're a little bit immune to you know what might be going on in the rest of the world everybody realized this was a, a global issue if the city and state closed down restaurants and bars and churches we would of course be closed down and then we would offer people exactly what we offered last, you know, March 2020, refunds or the opportunity to reschedule. A lot of people opted to reschedule from last 
March and April and May. They want to come back to the theater and we're letting them come back whenever they feel ready. I've always been really grateful that I've been able to have a somewhat stable career in the theater by virtue of the fact that Perfect Crime has run so long. And because there are two theaters in this facility that I run, there's always been other shows that I can sell the tickets for and if necessary, clean the bathrooms for, do whatever. I really love working in a theater. I missed this past year having people around in the theater that I was working in. So if anything, it just made me more, more grateful for the opportunity to be able to work in the theater and really, really determine to make sure that it's safe. We want to return to work, but we do not want to return to the old normal, right? So that means that we must change, for example, the industry's culture and history of white privilege and white supremacy. We have to end the show must go on mentality that makes people think that they have to go to work sick or injured because otherwise they're ruining the show, they're ruining <laughs> the theater industry. Um, you know, these are these are deeply ingrained cultural concerns. And if we're going to change the philosophy of how we do business in either of these contexts, it has to be a collective effort. We'll need to work together, not only as a union in solidarity, but with everyone in the industry. And I, I will say that those conversations are happening and they are promising. But if there's one thing I think we knew before this pandemic, it's that sometimes the union just has to push for what is right, even without broad industry consensus. And we will do that. Putting It Together is produced by Dory Berenstein and Alan Seals for the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Eulis Pekan, with additional music in this episode from Olive Music, Allegory Music, The Symphonic Collective, the original cast recording of Hamilton, and the soundtrack of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Additional thanks for this episode go to Gabriella Kasellowitz and Jennifer Dang. Artwork and editing is by me, Ollie Southgate. You can find me on Twitter, I'm at Ollie Southie, or contact me through my website at ollysouthgate.com. As always, my name is spelled with an I-E rather than a Y. I'll be back on the first Friday of next month with the last episode of this season before we take a month off. That episode will be with you Friday, June 4th. But until then, thank you as always for listening and goodbye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.